This is The Hawk. I'm Shlomo Zukier. I'm Avital Shija Goldschmidt. And I'm Shlomo Brody. Join us every other week as we discuss timely issues to Jewish communities on both sides of the Atlantic. Whether it's Torah, culture, or politics, we have the latest Hawk you'll want to hear. Welcome, everyone, to the first ever episode of The Hawk a new bi-weekly Facebook live event and podcast dealing with issues of Torah, politics, and culture as they relate to Orthodox communities on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Shlomo Zukier. I live in Riverdale. I'm a postdoc at McGill University, and I teach Torah in a variety of settings. I'm Avital Shisha Goldschmidt. I'm an editor with Forward, and I live in New York City. Hey, I'm Shlomo Brody from Odin, Israel, a dean of the Tikva uh, Online Academy, postdoc at Baradon Law School and a columnist for Jerusalem Post. Our first topic is going to talk about different models of membership. Over the past few months, coronavirus has had a huge effect on our communities. Aside from a devastating effect on the health and well-being of so many, the, pan the pandemic is wreaking havoc on Jewish institutions across the board, shuls, schools, and communities. Yeshiva day schools have long been financially stretched and now face additional new safety costs as well as parents who are less willing or less able to pay tuition when they know their students may end up in virtual learning for much of the year. Schools that have largely moved to remote services find parishioners less likely to pay dues for these limited and decentralized services, and also wondering why not to move away from the shul model. Well-established Jewish communities from Manhattan to Brooklyn and beyond stand to be shaken up by COVID as proximity to the workplace or to communal gatherings becomes less salient while square footage is held at a premium. Among the attempted solutions to these looming problems, some have raised new conceptions of membership models. The expectation of paying for day school out of a sense of obligation, or seeing oneself not as a consumer of shul services, but as a stakeholder in its well-being as potential solutions. So what do we each think about, about these approaches, and what do we expect the communal fallout to be from this major challenge? Okay, it's great to be with you guys and uh, really looking forward to this. I mean, I think just to start us off here, you know, we're talking about a great disruption. And I think it's a good way of thinking of COVID. Hopefully this won't go on for too much longer, but we have to assume it's gonna go on for a while. And that being the case, I, I think what we're seeing is that the existing models that were already strained are now being strained to a greater extent to the point where you have to ask, like, is something gonna break here? And my bet is that something is going to break. And the question becomes, what is it and what's going to come afterwards? Yeah, I, I happen to be rather kind of optimistic about this because I'm thinking about this in the long term. I don't think this is going to be something we are dealing with um, for years down the line. This is a one, maybe two year issue. Um, it seems to me, yes, Brody, I agree with you. Um, this is an issue that we, um, that, that we, that really is sort of straining all, already issues that were already existed. And I think you're right about that systemically. And I think that is also true on the individual and family level. Um, I will say anecdotally from my experience here in Manhattan, my husband is a rabbi here, um, you know, seeing young families sort of navigate this really difficult decision, whether they can continue living in New York City, whether they will continue sending to the same schools and going to the same schools, et cetera. Um, those sort of 
those decisions are coming at the, at the heels of issues they already were facing and this sort of just really exacerbated it, as I think COVID is doing to everything we know in the world. Um, but I think really specifically when it comes to day schools, issues that schools may have faced, and I'm hearing this from across the country, um, like, you know, sort of a lacking in a certain area of education, a lacking maybe in for being spiritually inspiring, et cetera, those issues are sort of becoming more and more salient in people's minds because they're trying to make decisions. Um, and, and those things may have not been enough to push them off earlier, but now people are sort of reassessing everything in their lives. And it's, it's way beyond schools and schools. It's where we're living, how we're living, what kinds of communities are we living in, how are we working, where are we working? Um, so I think this is just one symptom of many. For sure, and, and I would add that I think you know, even if just a small number of people make changes, whether out of financial necessity or new opportunities or, uh, you know, new expectations from work or whatnot, uh, you have a snowball effect, right? Just if 20% of people pull out of a school, the school needs to radically rethink its financial model. The same for some shuls, the same for some communities. So partially it depends on how much slack there is, how much leeway there is that's already built in, uh, in terms of how easy it is for places to adapt. Can you sort of just take the loss in the short term? Or does that mean that something needs to be radically changed or rethought? Yeah. As I understand, very few schools can just take a loss for one year. I mean, Brody, you're the expert on education. But, uh. <laughs> no, no. I mean, from what I'm reading, you know, the, the school's finances were so strained beforehand, heavily dependent on a lot of philanthropists, already heavily subsidized in some ways with scholarships. And, you know, if a family now has a situation where they've had severe financial loss or unemployment or furloughed or, you know, all sorts of variations of this, you know, that money, where's that coming from to pay tuition? If philanthropists have seen their investments go down or they've seen um, a lot of financial instability, can they fill in more than they're doing already? And I think that's all very unclear. And so I think that just the already strange scenarios that we already have are going on now, I think are gonna push us over in some sense. And somehow day school education is gonna look different two years from now, once the whole COVID passes hopefully, than it did you know, in 2019. I just don't see how it was, it doesn't gonna change things. And I think one of the reasons is frankly that we have this scenario now where we're all adapting in some ways. So people have local minyanim. Right, so that takes over for shoals. Well, once shoals go back in, is everyone gonna run back to shoals? I, I don't know, I'm not so sure. And I think the same thing's gonna be true with schools as well. People are finding alternatives online and in other ways. And then the question becomes, well, how much are you willing to invest in those schools and that tuition? One thing I've actually been surprised by is, you know, if you had asked me four or five months ago, um, I would have said someone probably is going to step in and really found an online school with the idea being, you know, it's not clear how much of the year will be in person anyway, in which locations, um, you know, either go to public school and have two, three hours of serious Jewish learning in the afternoon or some other model, because you have the economy of scale, right? You can have one, one school, you can have one, one video that people work with. And, and, you know, of course you need to build around that you need, but you, you may need some one on one time, but you, some things at least are scalable. Um, and you can do an alert, uh, you know, for larger numbers. And that hasn't happened, which is interesting. Could just be people didn't get their act together. It could be you know, there's too much worry. It could be there's too much a sense that you don't want to undermine existing models. 
But for whatever reason, that hasn't happened. Uh, in terms of shuls and shtibels, like there's obviously a draw of the shtibel, uh, you know, it's, it's faster and uh, you don't need to be on display for everyone. There, there's some, some upsides, but I think also there's people, people are looking forward to having uh, a, gen, a community with everyone together again. So I think there's, you know, pulls in both ways. I, I'm, I'm not really sure how things are gonna shake out. That's, I've been also curious about that point you made about um, people opting for public school and then remotely, right? And then, and then supplementing with some sort of other online Jewish education. I'm wondering if either of you have heard of families who are considering doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hearing a lot of talk about people looking into basically saying, well, this coming year, there's gonna be a lot online. And even if the schools are saying initially that they'll be in person, we don't really buy that. That's not really going to end up happening. And so if you have to ask yourself, I have some financial instability, or even if I don't, but I just feel strained by day school tuition, maybe I'll take off a year you know, from day school. Um, there's a very interesting op-ed written by uh, one of the heads of the SAR Academy, you know, the, the, um, I think the chairman of the board, who basically made an ethical claim and said people can't just take off a year and think the schools are going to still be there the next year the same when people dropped out because they thought, okay, this year is gonna be online anyway, I can get my history class done online as well. I think that op-ed was not written in a vacuum, right? There's, he's clearly hearing voices and talk and chatter about that. Uh, and I've heard it from a few people and I think the argument though has been a little bit different. For a lot of people it's been, well, I haven't really been feeling my kids that religiously inspired from his classes or her classes anyway. And so I think here is where the testing is gonna be. If you feel like you're really getting something great out of your day school education, then you're gonna stick with it. But if you're thinking, you know, this is okay, it's really not amazing, taking off a year might be an option for more people. And so I think that's really where the challenge is gonna be. People are gonna be challenged not on a financial level only, but also on a quality of education level, right? What are we actually producing? That's gonna to have to cause people to rethink things. But again, th those are problems that existed before. They're just kind of just coming to a floor right now. Right? The point that you made about schools maybe not being as inspiring as a parent might want them to be, right? That's, I find it really interesting. I mean, it, as painful as it is in the moment, perhaps in the long run, there is some sort of um, good reckoning or even atonement moment um, to reference the season uh, where we can really look, take a hard look at the way we do education right now and say, well, this has been actually unsustainable and let's be honest about it. And we have to rethink that. Right. And I'd, I'd add maybe a, you know, in addition to, to fixing the economic model, which I don't know if I'm as hopeful on that front, but maybe hopefully um, there's also a lot of positives, at least potentially that, that online education can bring, um, you know, and, and maybe that part of that is rescaling the, the model, the business model. But I think we've seen certainly for adults, for places that are have shiurim online, there's just uh, the ability to have someone who's in a far-flung place have access to Torah. There's the ability for a shear that's particularly good to not only be limited locally or to the recording later on, you know, on whatever platform, why you Torah or not. Uh, people can really feel bought in, part of a group from all over, all over the world. I, you know, I've experienced that myself teaching in a couple of, of summer learning programs that it really, you really can bring people together. It's not exactly the same as in person, something's missing, but you, you have some additional benefits. And while that may be harder to transfer, uh, to transfer to schools, certainly to little kids, my uh, kindergartner didn't, you know, didn't have the, the same experience she would have had uh, in, in person, certainly, 
but I think there are a lot of positives that we're going to hopefully we're, we're, we're using now and going to incorporate uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as you know, I'm getting involved now in the Tikva Online Academy for you know, Tikva Fund. And I think one of the things we're doing a lot is side enrichment, meaning the types of special classes that you wouldn't necessarily get in the school that we hope that day school kids will get. And also, of course, the non-day school kids and to have a broad reach, you know, over half of our participants aren't day school kids. But I think it presents a model which you have to ask, can we somehow incorporate that into our regular day schools in a way that can bring access to different types of teachers, to quality types of teachers, uh, a little bit more exciting in some ways, uh, and maybe help also reduce cost. I mean, somehow this system is not sustainable. And I know people have been saying for like 40 years it's not sustainable, but you know what, maybe really now, at some point it's really not gonna be sustainable. Um, and so I, I hope that online will be an avenue but, you know, I think, Avital, your point about people thinking about moving out of cities is going to be very important. There's a whole article now about people leaving New York City, leaving Los Angeles, leaving Chicago. Um, frankly, the numbers of nefesh benefesh of people thinking about Aliyah have skyrocketed. Now, we'll only know next summer about whether that's, you know, really going to come to fruition or not. But I have to imagine that part of that is people saying, you know, this is just isn't sustainable. Let me go to Israel for a lot of reasons, hopefully. Uh, but one of those reasons is, well, I don't have to worry about you know, healthcare, which is a big issue, of course, in the same way. And I don't have to worry about day school tuition. Yeah, I, I actually reported this earlier in the pandemic. I think it was the first week of June when Nefesh Benefesh released the staggering numbers of people inquiring. And, and, and again, I, I think this has been a trend, um, which I've also reported on months before this pandemic, um, it's been in the making. I think many millennials are considering uh, the option of living in Israel because of its obvious benefits in terms of yeshiva, of day school, and, and healthcare, and I, you know, and a, and a different quality of life that I, I heard from many people. I would say between ages of 25 and 40. Um, so I, again, I think this is this is just the final straw that broke the camel's back for many people. Yeah, and I'll just add in terms of communities, there's the, you know, the, the increasing opportunities of online learning really shift that. So you'd think there, at least in theory, and maybe it takes some time to work on this, but someone can buy a plot of land in some exurb, you know, uh, far enough away that there's cheap, uh, cheap real estate prices, but close enough that you can get whatever amenities you want with an hour drive or, you know, a two hour drive, whatever it is, and just build a community, get 20 families to move in, have a small minion, have them learn maybe some things in person, some things online. You know, that sort of, I guess you call it a hybrid community model, partially, partially tied into each other in person very intimately and partially tied to broader things online or with, you know, with a couple hour drive. You know, that could be radically cheaper than, than living in a place with, a, you know, with an existing area of where the costs of living are sky high, the school is really expensive, uh, et cetera. You can really build a lot like that, and for people who want to be within a firm community, this will be slightly different, but have most of the amenities, have most of the things, it, it should be doable, at least in theory, um, and maybe also make living an observant Jewish life more sustainable than it is for many people. So, I think, you know, they're, they're, these things tie together as well. The school, the shul, the community, really all, all build on one another in a sense. Yeah, I mean, that, that's been something that the OU has been trying to do for years, right, with their communities there. Um, even DMG occasionally opens up a colel out of town where they can sort of encourage young couples to consider living somewhere more affordable. 
Um, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a New Yorker in that way that I can't imagine moving out to somewhere so far. Um, but I, I, I wonder how, how attractive it really is for people, even with the option of remote work, even with the option, maybe, of remote education. Um, there are obvious things that draw people to more urban areas, uh, and those things I don't think are really going to go away. I, again, it's, this is, we're talking long term. I don't think those things will change. Right. Keep in mind also that COVID reminds people of the importance of living close to family also. I mean, so that, that whole equation is going to be interesting to see where people move. Um, but, you know, the other thing that we've been discussing also is, you know, the Schuld model and how that's going to be impacted. And, you know, I think that here, I imagine actually it's going to be a much bigger shift. And the reason is that it's hard to replace education. It's very nerve wracking to take a risk on your kid's education in the future. I'm not sure people feel the same way about Schulz. Um, that this could be the Israeli in me now who've, you know, sort of shifted away from that model a little bit. That's part of what, you know, I'm sure of my perspective here. But, you know, you have a situation where you've been now for the past few months, maybe supplementing, you know, a minion locally, have a bunch of group of friends get together. Um, you know, you really want to go back to the big show, to the three-hour davening? Definitely not the three-hour davening. I mean, I can't imagine that sticking around. But, you know, I, I don't know. And there's a lot of literacy in the Jewish community now, certainly in the firm community. In fact, in some ways, this is sort of the dividing line between the denominations right now. But the Orthodox communities, you know, they don't really need a rabbi and certainly not a chazan necessarily um, to have a functioning minion. And I think people like their rabbis for a lot of different reasons. And that's a very good thing. And so I actually think that would be very sad to see shuls break down. Uh, but I think it's definitely a risk right now because uh, of the fact that people might save themselves. You know, I just sort of like this local feel. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a... Oh, Avital, go ahead. I will just push back slightly, and I rarely am a defender of the rabbinic establishment, but today I will say that um, I, we, I see this and I worry about it a lot, I have to say. There are several issues with that local Stiegel model, right? And I think the main one, um, one thing I see work, you know, I would say being involved in a large shul in Manhattan is that so much of shul is the concept of Knesset, of assembly. And when you have 20 people gathered, it's not the same as hundreds or a thousand, right? And it's beyond, I would say, the service itself. It's about the sorts of connections that are made, the way that people meet, the way that people, you know, literally make shadduchim, um, find new jobs, right? We have so many people coming to shul because they want to just, you know, be in the room where it happens, as they say. Um, so I think that that is, that is actually a huge value to the community. And we really risk on losing that because I will tell you that LinkedIn and uh, JSwipe will never substitute the, um, the great value of that. And that's a really like utilitarian value, totally not spiritual, but again, extremely, I think, central to um, what community establishments are supposed to offer. As for rabbis, um, you know, it's, I've heard this a lot, you know, at the forward I edit essays and see a lot of pitches on these issues. We should destroy shul membership. Um, you know, why do we need this? Um, I don't know, as, as someone who sorts of sees the, the inside of what it means to be serving community um, in this position, 
there's only one person you can call at 1 a.m. when, God forbid, a parent is dying, right? When you need someone to come to the ICU and stay vidoid with the person who's dying. Um, when, you know, a child is dating out of the faith and you don't know how to deal with it, all those sorts of things. Um, and by the way, I think that's one of the issues in, in, in the system in Israel, is that we don't have that sort of a st um, support system. Yeah. We don't have that. And, and, and that, and, and people need it. I, I mean, we, see, we have thousands of people in this community, and we see how much people really need it. And when they don't have it, I, re I worry about people's, again, lack of sort of spiritual, but beyond spiritual, Jewish support. Well, Amitah, I think that was really well put. Uh, I'll add, I, it seems to me like a, a decent number of rabbis are nervous about, about changes moving in that direction. I think, you know, some of the, the language we've seen about, um, you know, are you a consumer or are you a stakeholder is really trying to push people to on a values level, not because it's what they would pragmatically want to do, but because they feel some greater uh, charge that they should, you know, invest in the shul in various ways. Um, but I think, I think the risk is there, and I think there's something that might be lost. I guess I wonder whether there's an alternate model of sorts. I think we're seeing this in practice a little bit, meaning what, what's the role of a rabbi? So I think, as I said, you beautifully put several aspects of it. You know, the rabbi gives shirim, the rabbi uh, you know, uh, speaks to people one-on-one -on -one or does funerals. Um, and the rabbi also is the leader of the community. So I think some of these roles, are, are it's possible to outsource, meaning giving shirim. So rabbis are giving shirim on their WhatsApps and you know, Zooms, and so are other people. Some people are even having uh, even having podcasts and, uh, you know, Zoom conversations, even though they're not uh, rabbis of, of specific synagogues, right? That's possible. Um, and you know, that can be outsourced. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a model where someone is, you know, exactly how you sort this out technically is, is an affiliate member of the shul. They're partially tied to a shul. They have the rabbi. They have a place they can go when they need to, when they need to go for networking purposes, um, you know, whether that's once a week on Shabbos or once a month. Um, but they also have their local minion where they actually prefer being, and they find some sort of medium, some sort of average between the two. I wonder if that's, that's a potential model going forward as well. I know it's not a full replacement. Well, it's not about full replacement. Then you, then you go into this issue, which is also common in the education world, which is the question of compensation, right? Where, how do we make sure that, that the scholars and the thinkers of our community are, are you know, paid for their time and for their, their work? Um, and, and I think that's extremely important. I, I don't think, you know, I think the, the question of yeah, no, uh, should not go away. I, I, mean, I think Avital is making an excellent point about this, that the disruption that could happen by 10% of people not paying shul dues might mean a lot of assistant rabbis losing their jobs, rabbis getting cuts, rabbis rethinking their whole rabbinic career. Um, you know, that's a huge disruption. It, there could be, by the way, of but, course, a counter effect. Yes, and there could be a counter effect, of course, where some rabbis tell me, no, they think their congregants realize that during a time of crisis, someone was looking out for them and actually was calling them and organizing, getting things going. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that most people feel that way and will see themselves as stakeholders, as you put it, and feel themselves as really investors in it. Um, but there's a real risk uh, right now. And um, that's, I think, has a scary potential uh, or certainly a, a shifting potential for what the world of rabbinic, you know, rabbinics is going to look like and shows. Yeah, I, I will just add one more thing that, again, anecdotally, I have been amazed by, um, you know, on the flip side, there, there's the sense that there's less of a need, but at the same time, there are so many who 
who are, I think, turning to spirituality and turning to the clergy um, people in their lives for direction, for guidance. Um, I'll, you know, just, we hosted our first sort of outdoor Friday night last week, just, you know, privately, and, and it was socially distanced, and it was, people were so emotional about it, that they couldn't believe they were getting together for a Shabbat dinner. Um, I, I think now more than ever, uh, rabbis, clergy people need to be there for, for their communities. Um, so, so we really, we risk losing a lot, and I, and I don't think that congregants are so quick as to sign off on that loss. I hope you're right. I mean, I hope you're right. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to find out. But again, the risk is just that one-year trial, and particularly of some group percentage dropping off. And I think here that more than schools might be the bigger risk. I'll tell you that here in Israel, in the first six, eight weeks, there was a lot of talk about how people miss shoals, how people miss the sense of community. And you know, now as things have sort of gone month after month, and people have found sort of alternatives. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Is there a little bit of a less of a sense of that loss? Um, and people, there's you no know, talking. Will we continue our minion when Corona's over? I mean, I have a minion literally on my street in front of our house, across two sides of the street and sidewalks. But we had our first kiddish. You know, when you have the first kiddish, <laughs> that's a sign of something's going on. And you know, it was, it was just you know, you know, schnapps and herring. Big sign, though. So, what do you mean, just schnapps and herring? Yes, yes. Well, it That's wasn't the ultimate Yiddish. There was complaints of not having chollen, so you know we'll see where oh, that wow. goes. But once there's chollen, yeah. Once well, there's chollen. It sounds like we've fully resolved this issue, so uh, we can maybe move on to something else <laughs> and hope for the best. Indeed, indeed, and we'll continue to follow it. Uh, but as we transition here, we're going to have a feature of recommendations. Uh, which are basically during every session, we're going to recommend something, a song, a book, an article, something we're thinking about that's hack worthy, as it were. That's something to, that we can talk about, that you should be talking about and following, and uh, just something that's on our minds and we think it's a good thing to be on your minds. Uh, so, Avital, I'm going to send it to you. I'll go to Shlomo, then I'll wrap it up with our recommendations. Go ahead, Avital. Right. I've been brought it as show and tell. Um, this is my Elul, beginning of Elul read. I'm a little late to it. Um, it came out last year, Sarah Schneer and the Beit Yaakov Movement, A Revolution in the Name of Tradition by Naomi Seidman. Um, it is, as you can understand, a biography of Sarah Schneer. Uh, roughly half of it is actually translated writings of hers. I've never read this much of her writing, um, only snippets before. Um, it is incredibly... Uh, simultaneously inspiring and restrained. It's very sober, um, not as, not really ideological, just really trying to tell the story and this woman's ideas in her own words. Um, so I, I highly recommend it to all. Um, it goes much bigger than gender. It's, it's really about the way that Orthodox politics work and it's particularly interesting to read about in pre-war Europe. Cool. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to recommend if that's a verb, a recent song called the Yeshivish Mozart. So it's by a real character and a bit of a comedian in the Lakewood world. He goes by Young Rechnitz for this song, but also by uh, Rabbi Greenspan in his uh, WhatsApp Musr Shmuzim, uh, Awkward Bacher on Twitter, and other aliases. So in general, he's an interesting, interesting fellow. 
Um, the song itself has a pretty good beat and, and rhyme. Could be a bit better in places, but generally pretty good. Uh, the best part, though, is the punning between Hebrew, English, and Yiddish, and really the mixing, the intermingling of Yiddish culture and pop culture, even some classical music references, hence the Mozart, or as he says it, Mozart. I guess that's more yeshivish. Um, there's more to say about, about, uh, about that, but I think this is part of an increasing trend of grassroots yeshivish culture, sort of bottom-up, um, user-made, you know, not, not top-down, not some big label, just people out there doing really cool things, interesting things, uh, and hilarious, hock-amended hock things in this case. All right, I'll I, stick with it. I'll oh. just say that I hear there might be a female version coming out soon. Oh, wow. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, I'll stick with the music theme, and I want to mention uh, Hanan Ben-Ari. There's a whole phenomenon right now of Israeli rock stars who are also singing very religious themes, some of whom are religious, some of whom are not, but all which are appealing to broad society. Hanan Ben-Ari is one of them. He has an amazing new song called Shibure Lev, very appropriate for Elo. Uh, and I think at this point, frankly, and we could probably talk about this and hawk about this at some point, many people would be happy to replace, you know, much of Slichos with like a good 10, 12 songs of like, you know, Yishai Rebo, Hanan Ben-Ari, a little bit of Eitan and Shlomo Katz and Call of the Night. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, probably a bad thing. I don't know, but something to think about. It's, it's part of the kumzitzization of, uh, of Orthodox Judaism. Ayin Sham Chaim Tevin. I disagree. I think this is modern Paitanut. This is beautiful to see new creative art being created from a religious, spiritual place. I think we've, we've been desperately needing this, and I think it's very heartening to see. And I wouldn't be shocked if one day we will include it in some of our liturgy. Wow. Okay, well, we're going to have to hawk about this another time. But <laughs> I'm okay with that, as long as we keep out Machnise Rachamim. But that's a different <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, I think we'll move on to the next segment. Uh, and this is, I think, very, very much hawk. Um, this is actually something when I, when I posted that we're doing this, I asked my followers on Instagram to asking them what you want to talk about and what you want to hear about rather. And people said, let's talk about this. The fact that the presidential election is heating up here in the States, we're about 10 weeks away. And the Trump community in particular is abuzz with debates over Trump. Um, President uh, Eric Sushabov and Mishpacha magazine, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky Shlita endorsed the president in a rare move. He said, quote, I think people should vote for him and that quote, he's done a good job. It's Akara Satov. In his words, quote, God has become a dirty word in much of America. Religion and religious institutions are their enemy. We need Rachamei Shemayim. If Trump doesn't win in November, it is worrisome. Rav Kamenetsky also said that it doesn't matter how the president talks. Quote, that's because he's a gear, a wealthy man, he said. Wealthy, powerful people have a way of speaking and acting that is not refined. That is not a reason not to vote for him. Then, two weeks ago, Popular singer Jakob Schwecki released the song in honor of the visit of President Trump to Deal, New Jersey. Many of you have probably seen it. In his words, he was, quote, paying tribute to our glorious country and its great leaders. On the other hand, at the same time, others have been gently pushing back on from community members' open support for the president's behavior and rhetoric. An open letter titled Sinai Not Washington was published by a group of Orthodox thinkers stating that, quote, the unhealthy confusion of Torah values with politics 
brings disrespute to Torah and harm to Torah Jews. Good character and benevolent governance are devalued. Many politicians and media figures revel in dividing rather than uniting the citizens of our country. Others legitimize conspiracy theories. None of this is good for America and certainly not for Jews, end quote. As we head into fall with the election just 10 weeks away and this country likely growing even more polarized, what direction are you seeing where you are in terms of where the firm political discourse is going towards? And is there any hope for civil conversation? So yeah, this is a huge topic. Um, and I guess the way, the way it looks to me, and we need to distinguish here between the more yeshivish, Hasidish, and Sephardic communities on the one hand, and the modern Orthodox community. The modern Orthodox community is still a big mix, and people think all sorts of different things, and it's hard to find a political orthodoxy, so to speak. Um, uh, but if you're looking, uh, if you're looking at those, the other groups, increasingly, you see these groups just becoming a wing of the Republican Party, the way that in evangelical circles that happens. So I think you have two sides here, as you presented, Avital. But I think it's pretty clear the, you know, the entrenched people, Rishmul Kamenetsky, all the publications, Ami Mishpacha, the basic presumption, most of the, you know, the uh, Haredi Twitterati. The, the basic presumption is Trump's our guy, we want Trump. And this Sinai, not Washington thing was a huge pushback, um, but a small group of people, they bought their ads. Some of them, a couple of them are insiders. Most of them, uh, you know, most even of that group are not particularly insiders. And they're, they're fighting as much as they can, not, to, not even to say, don't vote for Trump, but to say, let's not make this a religious issue. Let's separate religion and politics. And they get attacked for being political, for politicizing this issue. So I think we're at a point where, and I think this has been going on for, for maybe a decade uh, or, or, or so, where, you know, instead of politics being its own question and you try to do what you can to get benefits from the local government or figure out some deal versus we're ideologically fully aligned with the party, we're going with it, the same way that some parts of liberal Judaism are fully aligned with the Democratic Party, some parts of right-wing Orthodox Judaism are just fully aligned with the Republican Party, and they're just going to go with it. So that's, that's the way I see it. Uh, and I think it's, it's uh, moving even more, more and more polarized as American culture, political culture moves in that direction. I mean, listen, I, I wonder how much though we should separate the rhetoric and people that are very outspoken from like the silent group that might be quite significant numbers. Meaning the Rabbi Avi Shafrins who are not insignificant figures who are writing the Sinai, not you know, Washington and I mean, I wonder how much they may represent the silent voice. I am sure that within the Yeshiva Sho'elam and certain sectors of the Orthodox community, it's very easy to be outspoken about being a Trump supporter. And that came out in the Shweki video. I mean, what's so striking about the Shweki video is it's at camp. So it's like an assumed, like we can all sing together, you know, like this is the greatest president we've ever had or something like that, you know? Like, really? Like everyone agrees to that? You know, so I, I suspect that a lot, it's easier to be outspoken about it. I wonder though what the numbers are actually gonna be when it comes to the ballot boxes. Because if you look at the numbers from 2016, um, there was clearly a much larger number of you know, people in that community, in the Orthodox community in general, particularly that part of the Orthodox community that were more Trump supporters, but there was still a divide. And you know, so I, I, I just, we wanted to see what exactly that trend will be right now. I mean, if, if I remember, um, uh, I think Mitch Rockland had an article where he ran the numbers in Lakewood, at least the numbers were overwhelming. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like nine to one. It wasn't, it wasn't like 60, 40. It was, 
it, it was a landslide, as if I recall. Of course, different communities are different, but I think when you get to the extremes, when you get to like the core, you know, the core right-wing Orthodox communities of their to their various sorts, it's it's I think pretty one-sided. Even in 2016, I think if anything, it's more so. It's interesting, Zukir, that you point to it starting 10 years ago, roughly. Um, I, I do happen to think there has been a shift uh, in 2016 around there. I mean, Shweki, or at the time, whoever it was, Avram Freed, was not writing songs to you know George W. Bush in 2000, right? I think there has been a shift. I don't know if it's, I honestly don't know if it's partisan as much as it is around a personality. I remember you had a, a great article. I don't remember which publication at the time, but you, you interviewed a lot of people in Brooklyn and really gave a sense that I think multiple articles, right, both in the yeshivish community and in the Russian community. So those were really, I, you know, I really enjoyed those at the time. I think that's certainly one aspect, maybe part of why it's more extreme. When I said 10 years ago, I was thinking back um, to the Corzine Christie election, believe it or not, in particular, there was a, basically Lakewood previously had a VOD. The VOD said, vote for this guy. He's going to give us, he's going to help our institutions doesn't matter, Republican or Democrat. And that election, um, the wedge issue was gay marriage and there was a lot of activism. They said, we can't uh, support Corzine, he's pro-gay marriage, we have to support Christie. And they took half the vote. So the entire power of the VOD as saying, we're just gonna vote for, you know, for what's practically good for us, basically died there in Lakewood, the, the fastest growing and strongest yeshiva community in the US and, and who, sets the, 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 you know, who sets the culture. So I think from there, it's only radiated further uh, and it's just so clear that if you're Haredi, you have to be Republican. Uh, so that, that, that's my historical reconstruction. I'm no historian, but I mean, or at least not at this period. But, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, that, that's my sense of things. I mean, it's interesting because the social issues don't seem as prominent right now in American political discourse. I mean, it's a lot about personality. Um, so there's the same-sex marriage or abortion. Uh, maybe Trump will try to make these into, or someone else will try to make these into election issues right now. And so I think you have to ask sort of interestingly is, well, what's pushing people in that direction? And I, I myself have conservative leanings. I have less Republican leanings that have certain issues with the party itself. So, you know, I don't really see the Republican party right now and some of the people leading you as real conservatives. Um, so I wonder what exactly is then pulling parts of the community. I get some of the factors like support for Israel. Um, I'm not sure that's pushing the yeshivish community or not. Uh, I'm not really so sure. I could see arguments for like day school tuition, but I'm not really sure if the Republicans or for that matter, Trump in particular has really delivered on that. So maybe it's these religious liberty issues. I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder what it is that's pushing people in that community to be much more supportive as opposed to the Mount Orthodox community, which I think is much more divided on it. Well, I think, I think what you're saying is essentially you're, you're supporting Avital's uh, view, right? That this is about cult of personality rather than an actual uh, reason position uh, supporting certain platforms. Perhaps, although I'm not really sure what is it that's attracting people to Trump. I mean, it could be, I think initially, there was a lot of, he's gonna say things that need to be said that no one else is gonna say and make changes that, you know, that we think are important to say, and maybe some pushback in the culture wars. Uh, that part I got, at least in 2016. What I'm curious about now is what is the attraction in 2020 after four years? I mean, I fully understand why someone would still 
go for Trump without getting to whether I think it's a good decision or not. I understand it, but is it the personality now that's pulling people to him? I think, I don't know if it's personality so much as, um, well, I, I have two theories on this. Number one, uh, in terms of the personality, I think Rav Kamenetsky actually said, said it very well, right? Trump is the gvir, and we are culturally have become conditioned to sort of allow certain rhetoric or certain behavior to take place in certain circles, even inside the firm community, as long as the person is writing the check to the yeshiva, right? So I, I think if you ask my really brutal opinion, a lot of it comes from that. Um, so, you know, we, we will overlook moral flaws in a person um, for, for the bottom line. Um, that's number one. I think the other, the other point is, I think a lot of it comes down to media that is consumed. So I, I don't know how much people are necessarily Trump supporters as much as they are sort of being fed by whether it is Fox News or Breitbart or, or the From publications, which basically regurgitate that same material. Um, they're being told that if the Democrats are elected, this country is going to become socialist and entirely lawless, right? Um, and and that's and that I think is a is is a fear. And I think for Jews and visible Jews, there is legitimate fear to that too, right? Because these are communities that are afraid of anti-Semitism, um, and I think that is a legitimate fear to have. And they see Trump as a sort of strongman um, to sort of protect them. Interesting. I, I just had a thought or two about the the Gvirim line about the uh, you know the uh, rich people and how they're often uh, what's the exact line? They uh, they're wealthy wealthy powerful people have a way of speaking and acting that is not refined, as you said. So first of all, I hope uh, I hope Rukhamenesky is not reaching out to any uh, donors for any of his institutions anytime soon. But um, but more importantly, I had this fascinating experience in, in 2016 leading up to the election. Um, so it was, I think, Cholmoid Sukkis. I was a campus rabbi uh, in New Haven. We had, for some reason, a bunch of yeshiva students from Lakewood, not BMG, different yeshiva in Lakewood, came up to New Haven for vacation. Why New Haven? Ask, me, ask someone else. I don't know. But um, so we were talking about the election. We're just schmoozing over breakfast. And, um, and they said, well, you know, uh, you know, Rosh Hashiva said that uh, if, you know, Trump Segvir, he's rich. So obviously, Hashem's on his side. He has, right, he's, he's been successful. Um, so obviously that, you know, that, that proves that we should vote for him. So I'm not sure if the, if the Gvir angle is just he can help us out as much as he has some special siyata deshmaya, God's on his side, and we should vote for him, which, you know, that's an interesting version, a Jewish version of the prosperity gospel, certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that fits with other theologies. I, I've asked certain other rabbim and they, they seem to strongly reject that. But, um, but it's certainly a window into some people's views also, right? He's, this, he's super successful. Okay, he's gruff, he's a bully, but he gets the job done or God's on his side. I think a couple, couple options there. I know, I see that all as just excuses. I don't mean that in a bad way, as much as saying this is an explanation for how we dismiss those issues. And at the end of the day, I think what Rav Kamenetsky Shlito is saying is that he just sees Trump as uh, supporting the interest of their community. And so, you know, you may agree or disagree with that political assessment, but my, my take is that this is understanding of saying, well, if we want to protect our way of life, and maybe it's because of anti-Semitism or maybe it's because of religious liberty issues, um, but, you know, we think that Trump is in the Republican Party, 
maybe, or Trump in particular, is more is better for us than Biden and the Democrats. And you know, I don't know what's, what I find so fascinating though is I could see an argument to say why they think the Republicans are better than the Democrats, and therefore, despite Trump, or or whether or not Trump, you know, will support him anyway. What I found fascinating by Shweki and Shmuel Kamenetsky's statements was this endorsement of Trump. It wasn't just like he's better than the Democrats. And that I get, actually. That I have a lot of friends who feel that way as well. And then, you know, I can, we can argue about that. But I, I'm just shocked by the fact that there's this missing element of, you know, we're going to vote for him in spite of, as opposed to, or because he's a better alternative. I mean, the Shweki song, I mean, I mean again, I, I take a Shweki endorsement as much as I think you should take a Brad Pitt endorsement. Meaning I've never understood, and I don't know if Shweki and Brad Pitt have ever been compared before, but that's what you do when you hawk. So Good idea for a movie. Yes, indeed, right? And I don't think Brad Pitt's going to be playing Shweki in any upcoming movies. So, you know, it's a fair comparison in my mind. But, you know, I, I never bought into like celebrity endorsements. So I wasn't moved by the DNC having a lot of, you know, famous actresses introducing their night. But leaving that aside, it just, it was just like this, rhetoric of the greatest president ever and uh, types of conversation that I find to be quite uh, surprising for that one. So much to talk about. Um, I think I could do, talk about this specific topic for another few hours, but I won't uh, belabor you too long. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode of The Hawk and keep in mind that we are soon to release The Hawk in podcast form. Spread the word. If you liked our show, you'll want to follow our podcast. Subscribe to the Hawk Podcast wherever you get your pods and make sure to follow the three of us on social media for live events. We are your hosts, Avital Chizha Goldschmidt, Shlomo Zukir, and Shlomo Brody. Thank you for listening to The Hawk.